Well, we are in John 17, right in the middle of what is known as Jesus's high priestly prayer. And last week we talked about uh, what it is to be in the world, but not of the world. And this week we're going to build on that. Jesus also prayed that his people would be one. And as he and, and the Father are one, and that's, that's not a prayer for uniformity where everyone looks the same. That's what Islam is after, for example. That's what Mormonism is after. No, it's the desire that God's people would be united in hallowing his name and seeking his kingdom first. That, that's what our desire would be. That's what would drive us together as a people. And we're going to build on that again this week. Again, our text is John 17. We're going to pick it up with verse 16 and go through verse 21. This is Jesus praying. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I think it's safe to say as a congregation, we carry many concerns, many worries, anxieties. There's depression, there's hurts, there is wounds and scars. There is real disease, there is mourning. So Lord, I pray for us in this time that we would be together in our hurt with you, that you would minister to us here, that you would turn our eyes back to you and that we would see just how much you love us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Verses 15 and 16 highlight two different but related things about how Jesus sees his people. First, we are not of the world. That's a very important phrase that is repeated throughout this passage. We are not of the world. And as we talked about last week, One way of thinking about this that I think is useful is the way Stanley Harawas talks about us as resident aliens. Now, alien, of course, does not mean we are from another planet, but rather someone who lives here but belongs to another country. So even though we may have been born here or grew up here or have the same accent or whatever, because Christ has made us his own, because we belong to him, we are, as as a matter of consequence, citizens of another kingdom, and therein we are fundamentally different because we have a different set of assumptions and allegiances than those who do not belong to Christ. So it's, it's good. It is good to love the state of Alabama or the United States or whatever, but if you do not see yourself primarily as belonging to the kingdom of God first, then you've misunderstood how God sees you and what he expects of you. So on the one hand, you know, we ought to feel a certain level of familiarity, (laughs) say that word three times fast, living where we do, right? But I mean, if you just think about Paul, Paul certainly 
was at home in his Jewish culture and loved being Jewish. And there's nothing wrong with that. But on the other hand, we should feel some tension as well because we are no longer defined by the kingdom of man and its values. And the problem comes when Christians blend America or even the South with the kingdom of God as if the two are the same thing. And they are not. They're just not. The kingdom of America will pass away. And for all we know, it is well down that path already. But the kingdom of God will literally and truly cover the earth forever. Not figuratively, truly. We are resident aliens. And as verse 15 indicates, God does not intend to pull us from the world to help us escape it. Rather, as verse 18 says, he intended to send us into the world because, as John 3.16 says, he loves the world. We are to love the world, not by becoming like the world or taking on its values, but by living in spirit and truth. So think of it this way. God not only made everyone you hate. Think about this for a second. God made everyone you hate. And he loves them too. And he loves them too. If you really think on that, it's sobering. It's sobering. It should put us in the mindset of Jonah where we, we just don't know what to do with God. That means sometimes our neighbors will love us. But sometimes they will hate us. And as Nathan Skipper recently pointed out to me, and I think this is very insightful on his part, Christians in our circles are often pro-country until the country turns against us. Like when our, our, our favorite candidate doesn't win or we lose some of our rights or public opinion turns against us or whatever. At which point we want to retreat or worse, we turn angry or perhaps even violent. This is not what Jesus had in mind when he asked the Father to send his people into the world as he was sent into the world. Well, in verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify is uh, to set apart for the purpose of holiness and or also to growth in holiness itself. And, and, and the truth, as Jesus sees it, is not some abstract concept. It's not the philosopher's question, what is truth, but rather is defined by the word of God itself. That is, our standard or measure for what is good and right is defined by God alone. So, so here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that God's word speaks to every possible bit of knowledge we could have. That book would be without end. No. So, for example, I don't think the Bible speaks directly to how to do physics. At least I've never seen equations in there. Or complex global markets or how to compose a piece of music. But what it does speak to is the God that created all things and in turn, what kind of humans God intended us to be, which itself speaks to how we should approach all kinds of discipline and knowledge, including things like physics or economics or music composition and, and what our governing assumptions and commitments will be as we do them. So, for example, as a Christian, it is impossible for me to approach economics or history or philosophy or medicine 
without first considering Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the most physically deep statement ever made. That verse and everything that follows it defines how Christians must see everything. So any reasoning or interpreting of the word done of the world, excuse me, done apart from Genesis 1 or in denial of it, it may get some things right. I mean, you can't escape that this is God's world. So sinful humans, by virtue of being made image bearers living in God's world, will get some things right. But they will ultimately come to wrong conclusions or attribute wrong motivations or wrong reasons to why things are the way they are. All you need to do is look at the scientific movement. That started as a church movement. And what happened when God was removed? Do they get things right? Of course. An iPhone is an incredible piece of technology, even as I think Steve Jobs had no idea what a human is. You see my point, hopefully. Jesus' point is that God's people will be defined by him and his word, and this relationship will define every single thing, every single endeavor we do. Now, I come back to Deuteronomy 6 often as an example of what it looks like to do this in real, ordinary, everyday life. Deuteronomy 6 begins with the confession that the God of Israel is the creator God of all things, so he's the, he's the only God there is, and that the only appropriate response to him and his love and his generosity is to love him in return. And the way Israel was to do that was by thinking through and applying God's word to every situation in life. I mean, there is never a time in which love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself is not in effect. So the picture in Deuteronomy 6 is of a community centered and ordered on this word that in turn teaches it to each other, which is what we actually try to do, but especially to their children whenever and wherever they can. And it's like what John Chrysostom said 1,600 years ago. So a long time ago, and we, we covered this in the men's study this week. He wrote, let us then not consider how to leave our children rich, but how to leave them virtuous. Now, there's a big difference between being rich and being virtuous. It's possible to be both, but typically if you're pursuing riches, you will not pursue virtue. It's like what Proverbs 11.4 says. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So up until the moment of your death, riches can be of great value. But when death comes, they're useless. Likewise, virtue may leave you poor or uncomfortable or ostracized or at the very least, not very comfortable, right? But at the moment of your death, virtue is of surpassing worth. And who can predict? Who can predict the moment of their death? Of course, what Proverbs has in mind is not virtue or righteousness for the sake of virtue, but rather loving God and what he loves. That's, that's what virtue looks like. Even so, in our circles, 
the driving concern for parents, and I would argue this has been true for several generations now, is that our kids would enjoy at least the same standard of living as we do, if not better. That's the good life we imagine for them. It's what we, we hope for, for them. It's why we are far more concerned with test scores than catechisms or attendance at school than Sunday school or what future job they will have rather than what kind of character they will have. Now, to be sure, we want them to be good people, which usually equates to being nice or courteous, but really we want them to be safe and we want them to be economically more than viable. And the, the pandemic has, has brought a spotlight to this. So for example, in comparison to 2019, before the pandemic, Sunday school attendance is way down. It's way down. Now, we could point to COVID for that, but that doesn't explain, for example, how sporting events continue to have big crowds, both the kind we pay top dollar for and the kind where our kids are the players. Men's study is way down. Sunday evenings are down. We're trying to restart Wednesday dinner this month. We're going to see how that goes. And I say something like this, you know, every couple of months, and then the next Sunday or two, if people listen to the recording, we'll, we'll get a bump in attendance, but it, it goes right back to where it was. And I realize, you know, COVID makes things weird and unpredictable right now. I mean, it, it disrupted my family for two weeks, and I had to get someone to fill in for me when I had no intention of doing that. You know, even so... All that aside, my fear is that we are increasingly taking on the world's values and habits and that perhaps we are pursuing something other than virtue. Well, verse 18 tells us that just as Jesus was sent into the world by the Father, so too Jesus is sending his disciples into the world. So follow his thought here. We, we should no longer see ourselves as of the world. That is our allegiance has changed from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God, from, say, Babylon to the new Jerusalem. And in turn, we are not merely existing in the world. Our lives have purpose. And the purpose is for bearing witness to Jesus and his kingdom so that the world can turn to him and find life. So you know, every Christian is, by definition and a matter of consequence, a missionary. Don't be freaked out by that. I, I heard that growing up and I freaked out. Like, I do not want to be a missionary at some island somewhere or whatever. Don't hear it that way. Some Christians are called, for sure, to go far from home, specifically to preach the gospel. And so, remember I just said, that is exactly what I did not want to be. Well, it wound up not being a foreign nation. It just wound up being foreign cities in the United States. Meg and I are missionaries. And by virtue of that, so are my sons. They probably don't think of themselves that way, but they are. So even though I, I love it here, which I do, I have a sense of homelessness because I'm 24 years removed from my hometown. That's half my life. I'm a stranger to it. I'm eight years removed from the city I lived in for most of my adult life. And it feels foreign to me now, too. My wife and I have never enjoyed the presence of family. We've never been able to, to depend on grandparents to be there to 
here, please take the kids. Please, you know, if one of us got sick, here we go. Here we go. I hope we can, can make it through. That's just part of being a particular kind of missionary. I'm a missionary, but so are you. That doesn't mean you are, you are called at all to be a preacher overseas. If you are, great. That's a lot of people's fear, I know, when they hear that word missionary. But I'm telling you, no, you are called to be a missionary here. To be a missionary here, and it doesn't require you to do what I do for a living. So, for example, in the middle of a court proceeding, should Calvin Poole start talking about Jesus? Even though he, he probably has a captive audience, that's not the place for that. Now, is there a place for him to talk to friends and colleagues? Of course, and he does. And even so, it, it takes wisdom to know when and how to do that. Like how Joseph or Daniel approached their work. Do you think they were only ever giving the gospel? No. You know, a, a Christian functions as a missionary in how he or she comports herself, say in court or wherever you are called to live, you know, how you deal with your coworkers or, or, or any number of things. It's like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. He said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Now, I think that's way overstating things, but his basic point, I think, is a good one. We should look and act differently from the world, and the world should notice. Now, in verse 19, Jesus says that for their sake, that is his people, his disciples, and by extension us, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus set himself apart for the purpose of giving us life. And as he says here, to sanctify us in the truth. So our, our growth and holiness is not something we do alone. This is not like I got to roll up my sleeves and get to the law. No, it is, it is founded on and bounded up with him and his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and, and so is the truth, by the way. Without his life, death, and resurrection, we should throw all this and do something else. Without his atoning sacrifice, we, we would not be set apart, and in turn, there just would be no growth in the truth. So on the one hand, you know, we have been sanctified through Christ, which means we have been set apart and made the sons and daughters of God, and that's, that's a one-time event that happens in conjunction with our justification. But on the other hand, sanctification is something God works in us over time and we in turn respond to his work in us. It's why, for example, the fruit of the Spirit is something the Spirit produces in us even as Paul calls us to respond to the Spirit and cultivate it. You see it's a both and there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things we see in Jesus. And it's what he wants in us too. Jesus loves you so much that he patiently works to make us holy. We were made to be like him. We were made to be fully alive humans in communion with him. So in love, we are to respond to that work of the Spirit in us by mortifying, 
That's an ancient word, or at least an old English word, that means putting to death, mortifying the flesh. And mortifying the flesh, that is, fighting against our sin, is one of our chief callings in this life. There will come a time where you do not have to fight against it anymore because you will have none. But in this life, it's one of our chief callings. And one of the ways you can know you are a Christian, and we're gonna talk about this in a few moments at the Lord's Supper. One of the ways you can know you are a Christian is that you are at war with your sinful desires and inclinations as you grow closer to Christ. And as you grow closer to him, you see your sin more clearly and you hate it. So it's you know, one thing to recognize that you're a sinner. You know, I, I don't know anyone, Christian or otherwise, who actually believes they are perfect. Now, they may think they're better than somebody else, but they don't think they're perfect. But it's another thing to hate your sin, repent of it, and to struggle against it. And in all of it, love is key. Love is key in all of this. So for example, it was impossible It was impossible for me to quit smoking until I was sick of it and started truly hating it. Before that point, I loved it. I loved it. And the idea of quitting was nonsense. But the key to fighting against your sin is not trying to adhere to the law better or simply trying to find a way to hate your sin or what actually so often happens for Christians is they wind up hating themselves. No, the key is to love something else more. It's to love something else more. So I didn't fight against my addiction merely because I thought it was bad. Even when I loved it, even when I knew I was starting to develop sleep apnea at the age of 30, I still loved it. I thought it was great. I couldn't imagine life without it, even though I knew this thing is gonna kill me. It was because my wife called into question whether I loved her and my newborn son more or I love smoking more. Because as she put it to me, you know, we love you, Rob, and we don't want to lose you to this. And the truth was, I did love my family. But at that moment, I loved my addiction more. And having my idolatry revealed to me like that put me on one of the most painful paths of my life. And here, here's the irony. You know, quitting smoking felt like dying. Think about that. Quitting smoking felt like dying. Sin and addiction feels like it is life, like it is life-giving, even as it kills us. Now, 15 years later, I still occasionally get withdrawal symptoms, even especially when things are stressful. And I still smoke in my dreams. It's nuts. It is nuts how addiction touches your heart and your mind and your heart. You will never, you will never really fight against your sin, whatever that sin is, until you start to see just how much God loves you and delights in you and wants what is best for you, and you in turn start to question whether you actually do love him and the people in in your life more, or, or do you love maybe that sin more? So go back to what I was pointing out earlier about 
how church attendance and Sunday school attendance and men's studies and all the rest of that stuff are down and have been over the last two years. Now, I'm fully aware that pointing this stuff out will probably make some of you feel guilty. Others, it may make feel judgmental because you show up and faithfully so. And me saying this may not change much of anything, or it might be worse. It may uh, encourage you to quit trying altogether because why bother? Or on the flip side, to pursue these things for superficial and ultimately bad reasons. Well, I I need to do this, I guess. Until we start to see just how good our God is and how much he delights in us, we won't start to value and love him above our sin or the pursuit of our pleasure or the selfish pursuit of our time. Which takes us to the last two verses. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. Everything he's been praying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that one verse could be a really long sermon in itself. And don't worry, it's not, but at least not today. As we mentioned last week, Jesus is not after uniformity where we all look the same. We are not Muslims. He's after unity a unity of desire and purpose. And what unites us is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the unity of purpose is expressed in thanksgiving in which we recognize that God provides all things for us. Give us this day our daily bread. And that thanksgiving shows up in how we structure our time and our resources around him. It's why the Lord's day is foundational for how we structure our time. And without centering our time here, we most likely will not center anything else around him either. Yet the unity of purpose also flows down to a community that is humble. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that that short little phrase in the Lord's Prayer speaks to our life together in mortifying the flesh altogether. That is confessing to God that we have sinned against him, looking to him for forgiveness. And in turn, and for many of this, this is the hard part, repenting and fighting against our sin together. We talked about this last Sunday night when we talked about honesty. That as a people, we are called to confess our sin to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that you're called on to just you know, emotionally give everything to, to every Christian there is. No, you should, you should go looking and try and cultivate good friends. And I know how hard that is in our, our post-Christian age here. I know how difficult that is. But still, we need to be the kind of people that are honest about our sin and honest about our struggles, that are willing to confess a sin when we've done it, but also that are willing to forgive a sin when we've been sinned against. You know, if you really get to know people, which is a serious question now, in our times, can you really get to know someone? I'm not talking social media. That's, that's illusory. 
Can you really get to know someone? But if you do get to know someone, guess what? You will be sinned against. And they will sin against you. And if you've ever been in a family, then you know just what I mean. We will hurt each other. We will say things that cut like a knife. We will be selfish and proud and arrogant. And we will have regrets. And we will have shame. And we are called to humbly seek forgiveness and show grace and mercy because our God has done this for us. Now, just a quick aside, because there's a big misunderstanding about this in the broader church world on this very topic. I'm not at this point talking about abuse. Abuse is different. You know, statistically, chances are, if we're just looking at the data and we're just looking at statistics among Americans, chances are some of you have, have been abused in some manner. There's a chance some of you are enduring it now. Everyone knows how to put up a good face. We know how to hide things behind closed doors. And abusers in Christian context often know how to use Christian language about forgiveness and reconciliation to twist things to their advantage and make the one they're hurting feel crazy. We call these people wolves in sheep's clothing. See, abuse is a serious, it is serious, and it demands justice, justice. It demands that abusers not be allowed to continue to hurt people, not only for the victim's sake, but for the abuser. Now, is forgiveness possible for them? Yes, but that does not mean things go back to the way they were, which is almost always what people want. Can we just go back to normal? No, no, we can't. No, not only must the church be for those who have been hurt, which we must, Abusers must not be allowed to continue to act. And they've given up the right to return to how things were. I'm not, so we're talking in the, the broader scope of, these, of, of sinning and confessing sin. We have to admit that there are degrees. There are degrees. And there are some that, that we must act on. And it will change things. And it's painful. So just as David was forgiven... For his treatment of Bathsheba and Uriah, so also things were not without consequences, deadly ones. People died because of David. And arguably his actions were the beginning of the end as Israel, as the United Kingdom. So the church of Jesus Christ, we have to stand. We have to stand against abuse, especially within our own ranks. And you know what? If you need help, contact me. Contact me. I'm not perfect. I may not know exactly what to do. I'm just a guy. But I'm a safe place. I'll try and help. I'll try and help. So what Jesus is after is the kind of church that seeks humility and justice and grace and mercy all together. And it's really hard, but it's beautiful when it happens. It looks like the fruit of the Spirit. It looks like naming a sin and owning it. It looks like the confession of sin. It looks like advocating and protecting victims. It looks like repentance. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And as Jesus says, when his people pursue him like this, when we seek the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of man, when we seek virtue and not riches, the world takes notice of it. And some may come to believe and Jesus because of it.
May that be. May that be us. So let me pray for us. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you are good. You're so good. You're so patient. We thank you for the grace we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in him. We thank you for the sanctifying work of the spirit who is in us even now, working and convicting and encouraging and patiently teaching us. We pray now as we come to the Lord's Supper that this would be a good and sweet time in which we can come and name our sins to you, knowing that we have the confidence that you will forgive. There is no God like you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.